0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. You know, I, I've written, I think people ask me how many books you've written, and I pause and hesitate, and they think it's an affectation. How could you ever forget how many books you've written? But there are, of course, about three or four of them that I want to forget. Um, and I say seven or eight, and they say, well, what about this one? You know, you wrote mostly novels. And I said, you know how at coffee shops uh, you'll buy 10 cups of coffee and you get one free? Well, I, I wrote eight books and I got this one free. Um, I got it just by living and being like a narrator that I've been compared to, uh, you know, uh, in a way that's humbling but uh, make some sense, uh, Nick Carraway in the great Gatsby, a guy who says he's been prey to many veteran boars, um, and who listens to the stories of everyone and, you know, gives too much time and attention to nutcases. Well, that was my, uh, uh, problem and, but it was also my, uh, opportunity. When I met this Clark Rockefeller, I, I have to set up the whole book, It was because in 1998, I'm living in Montana on a ranch. Um, I don't have any money. I bought the ranch out of some uh, Hemingway affectation, and uh, I'm deeply in debt. The local uh, Humane Society, which is building a new shelter, calls me and says, we put a dog up for adoption on the Internet, uh, a Gordon Setter. And a man from New York named Clark Rockefeller called and says he wants to adopt the dog, He says he can give it a very good home because he serves four-course meals uh, prepared by his chef to his other Gordon setter. He lives next door to Tony Bennett, he tells us, and Bennett sometimes comes over and serenades the dogs uh, to quiet them when they're nervous. And he lives upstairs from the top veterinary acupuncture on the eastern seaboard, so uh, he'll be able to help rehabilitate Shelby. That was the name of this dog in the wheelchair. And we're hoping that if you talk to him, and because I'd gone to Princeton, they thought I would speak his language. I'd know the secret handshakes. Um, uh, You know, he might give us a big donation for the animal shelter. So I got on the phone with this guy one day, and I'm going to do his voice in the book um, because I love doing his voice. Uh, See, at the time, it sounded like a convincing upper-class East Coast accent. Now it seems like the mask put on by a German who's watched Gilligan's Island, seen Thurston Howell III and imitated him all his life. Um, This is a book about finding out not only that somebody isn't who they say they were, but that a lie is absolutely the truth until it's no longer the truth. People tell me, how could this guy have persuaded you? I say he persuaded everyone right up until the moment he persuaded no one. And so This is a book kind of about a magic trick that was played on me by an evil sorcerer. Um, For 10 years, from 98 to 2008, he convinced me that he was a Rockefeller, an art collector, a a dog fancier, um, as you'll see, uh, a novelist. And then he kidnapped his daughter in 2008. There was a nationwide Amber Alert. I was sitting in Montana. Saw on the news that Clark Rockefeller had kidnapped his daughter. I knew from these heartbreaking late night phone calls we 'd shared over the year in which he 'd told me he was missing her after his divorce that you know he seemed to love this daughter and he 'd snapped and I, you know, I, I felt for him you know uh, three days later they caught him, and the Rockefeller family came out and said. We don't know who he is. He's not a Rockefeller. And I said, you friggin' Rockefellers, what cowards you are. You, a hint of scandal and you throw your own blood over the bus, you know, out of, under the bus. A few days later, it came out that he wasn't not only not a Rockefeller, he wasn't an American. He was a German exchange student. He'd come over at 17 years old to Greenwich, Connecticut um, and practiced being an American and a f- kind of phony, high-toned American. And then a few days later, it came out that he was a suspect in a murder from 1985. Now, that seems like I've just told you half the book, but this is my story of being with him innocently and then learning who he really was and attending his murder trial, which was a prism through which I looked back at my relationship with him and said, oh, there was the clue. Oh, there was the other clue. And why didn't I get it? What was, about, what was it about me that night that was wanting to believe You know, I was sitting in a club with a fancy man? What was it about his exploitation of this or that insecurity in me that it caused me to overlook uh, this or that story? I mean, I'll tell you a couple of the uh, biggest whoppers he told me, and you'll look at me like I'm mentally ill for uh, having continued to have a friendship with him. I, I one time met him... Uh, this might be in what I read, but uh, at, his, at his country house, and he told me it was too bad that I'd gotten there that week because the week before, Britney Spears had been there to visit him. This was in New Hampshire in the countryside, not kind of a place she frequents, you'd think. <laughs> and then he said, it's too bad you're not going to be here next week because Chancellor Kohl of Germany is going to be here. And if you put those two names together in your mind assuming they fit in one mind, which they don't really, um, it stops your ability to think. Somebody says, oh, you just missed Britney Spears and you're going to miss Chancellor Cole at the same place. Whoa. So, you know, I'm trying to set you up for what a liar he was, but now I want to bring you back as though you don't know any of this. Use something called dramatic irony. And imagine me driving a crippled uh, Gordon Setter that is like a mermaid. I compare it to a mermaid. It had no bones or sort of structure in the back half of its body. It just dragged along like a long tail. And it was in a wheelchair. And uh, I got it in my truck in Montana to drive it east because the airlines wouldn't fly it. And Clark didn't drive, of course. You know, something as pedestrian is driving. He didn't do. And his plane was in China with his wife. So... I volunteered to drive it 2,000 miles, of course. Um, My first thought was, I'm going to write about this guy. He's such a crazy eccentric. On our first phone call, he said, you know, I've never tasted Coca-Cola, Walter. Could you describe its taste for me? (laughs) Try that one. I said, well, it tastes brown and um, sugary. Uh, But anyway, I thought, "It's, it's malpractice as a novelist if I don't meet this guy. So I got in my truck in Montana, I was a lot younger I had a baby on the way I had a huge mortgage I was scared of life I was between books and didn't know if I could write another one I got to Minnesota which is a thousand miles away um, where my mother lived in a tiny little town after three days of 90 degree heat the dog incontinent peeing all over the seat Every time I went around the curve because it couldn't break it, brace itself with its back legs, which didn't work, it flew like a bowling ball against the door and then back against the dashboard. Um, when I would take it out to pee, it, it couldn't lift its back legs, uh, its back end off the ground, so it would pee on itself unless I put it into its wheelchair, which took about 15 minutes strapping it in. Then people would come over and say, Oh, a dog in a wheelchair. Um, so I got about 300 miles a day driving all day long. And I got to my mom's house. And my mom is uh, a nurse, was a nurse. She died a couple of years ago. A very practical, Midwestern, hard-headed person. uh, A reader. One of those people who has the collected Dickens and Twain and rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And really kind of a tough cookie. Um, And here's what happened. Oh, and she has a perfect, she had a perfect house. The dog's name's Shelby. Shelby soiled my mother's kitchen rug the moment I helped her roll into the house. My mother's place was a tribute to English cottages of the sort that Miss Marple might visit to solve a murder all bookshelves and lamps and lace antimacassars, with so many welcoming nooks to sit and read in, so many helpful side tables and ottomans, that the question of how to best get comfortable there was a bit overwhelming, just too much choice. On me, the house's effect was soporific and happily slow. The sleep I usually got there was soft, upholstered, deep, enveloping. It was the sleep of a prized and cared-for son, impossible to achieve in other settings. To benefit from this maternal service, though, required appreciative tidiness from me. No drinks without coasters, all throw pillows replaced. And Shelby's disgusting act when we arrived ruined the atmosphere, setting it on edge. Out, that dog goes out, my mother said. "'She had me settle Shelby on the porch "'under a bird feeder, hectic, with wrens and chickadees. "'I folded her wheelchair and leaned it against a wall. "'It's ugly, that thing. It upsets me,' my mother said. "'She was a small woman with olive skin "'and complexion-contrasting blue eyes "'whose power was their ability to narrow decisively "'yet minutely, also instantly, "'leaving a person to wonder what had shifted. "'My mother's facial expression?' or the weather. Once she passed judgment on something, the issue was closed. There could be fighting about it, but no winning. When I came back inside after fussing with the chair, she made me wash my hands with ivory soap and gave me a fresh towel to dry them on. The towel went straight into the washing machine along with the clothes that I had on. My other clothes were in the truck, but I was forbidden to bring my bag inside. My mother gave me a robe and made me shower and waited for her, me in, their, in her leather reading chair beside the stand where she displayed her dictionary and kept her curated kit of reading tools, her fringed leather bookmarks, her colored pencils, her ivory-handled magnifying glass. I'm going to say this, she said when I sat down. I can't. I'm sorry, Mom. It's not my dog. I want you to put it she said. I know why you might think that, but I just can't. This is absurd. It doesn't have a life. It can't even scratch itself, for heaven's sakes. Who is this man, anyway? Clark? There's something wrong with him. Anyone who'd want that animal, there's something wrong with him. I'm telling you, which branch of the Rockefellers is he from? That's not the kind of thing we talk about. Well, how old is he? My age? I don't know exactly. Who's his grandfather? Nelson? David? Lawrence? My mother was a consumer of big biographies and knew her major lineages cold. Tudors, Plantagenets, Kennedys, and Shrivers. The woman belonged on genealogical jeopardy. (laughs) Mom, I'm not up on that stuff I said. I need to sleep. I'm going to say something else to you. Okay. I knew what was coming nothing. She'd go quiet. She'd let me imagine something, a trick of hers. She'd look at me, I'd look at her, and then I would make some excuse to look away. I hated it. I'd hated it since childhood. Maybe the new way to play things would be to say so. I hate this mom, I said. I hate this one. She let the silence chill and thicken. In the window behind her, the air was turning green, the color it gets in rural Minnesota when pelting hailstones are building inside black clouds and farmers are herding their animals indoors. Our small town was a strict, efficient, moral universe where even the elements collaborated to help make the points that needed to be made. I need to bring her back inside, I said. I'll only allow it if you put her down. This is out of my hands, I said. I made a promise. Phooey, Walt, my mother said. Now, the dog was not put down because I basically believed there was a, a principle at stake, which is when a Rockefeller asks you to deliver a dog, don't bring a dead one or tell, you, tell him halfway along the way that you euthanized it. Um, but she was right, it turns out. There was really, and, and if you read the book, you'll find out about the fate of this poor dog, which is... Horrible. Um, but but I, I, in my vanity and in my foolishness and in my novelist's curiosity, pressed on to New York. But I couldn't drive anymore. I was having a nervous breakdown. So I got in a plane and I sort of hid the dog, pretended it wasn't crippled, put blankets over it, shoved it in the back of a pet grate and got it onto a nonstop plane to LaGuardia um, where I was met by Mr. Clark Rockefeller. And this is my first glimpse of him. He said I would recognize him by his resemblance to the actor David Hyde Pierce, who played the character of Niles, the brother, on the TV comedy series, Frasier. It was one of my mother's favorite programs, so I knew Niles well. He was slim, fay, balding, and he wore suits. The first time my mother made me watch the show with her, my impression was that Niles was gay because the script portrayed him as an opera buff. But later in the program, he mentioned a girlfriend. Because I'd been called gay at Princeton for writing poetry and at Oxford for writing plays, I abhorred any stirrings of bigotry in myself. But when Clark compared himself to Niles, his tone of voice, conspicuously pleased, I'd wondered if he were testing me sexually as other gay men whom I'd known had when I'd met them. But Niles wasn't gay, of course. He only seemed to be, and only to rubes like me, so probably not. What Clark was testing in me, if anything, were my feelings about prim and prissy upper-class types. I liked them just fine, was the answer. They had their place. I looked around for Niles and Pierce's double as I stepped off a crowded escalator into LaGuardia's baggage claim area. Was that him? Too stout. Was that him there? Nah, too grim. I didn't like this guessing game. I didn't think it should have to be a game. He, would, he could have told me how he'd be dressed, as I'd done. Blue denim, button-down shirt, black jeans, and sneakers. I didn't care to impress him, this outfit meant. I was from Montana, my own man. "'There you are, Walter! Welcome to New York!' Clark, who seemed shorter than the TV actor and lacked his swan-like bearing, was wearing a pink-billed cap and a pink polo shirt. His hair, what little I could see of it, was a tampered-with, unconvincing shade of blonde. His glasses had thick, dark plastic frames and looked like they ought to come with a fake mustache attached. He had on khaki trousers and no socks." So, uh, I met Mr. Clark Rockefeller. He took the dog out to the curb. He had a car waiting, he said, and he said goodbye and jumped in the car, not asking where I was going that night. Did I have any place to stay? He, he told me that if I performed this favor for him, he'd generously, uh, reimburse me. Um, and I didn't get reimbursed there at the airport. But right before he got in the car, he said, uh, meet me at the Sky Club, top of the Met Life building. Tomorrow night, we'll have dinner. So I went to dinner with him the next night. My wife had flown in from uh, uh, Montana. She was head of the Humane Society. Everybody was waiting for the big score. And we had dinner up at the top of the skyscraper. And it was so tall that it looked down on Rockefeller Center. And Everybody from TV now is familiar with what Rockefeller Center looks like. To look down on it means you have to be pretty high up. And we're sitting there after dinner, and uh, things. dessert has come. And Clark says to me, Walter, are you up for some, an, an adventure? And I said, yes. He says, well, let's take a tour of uh, Rockefeller Center. We can go down in the basement. I have the key. And I, uh, the key? Yeah, the master key to Rockefeller Center, you know. So that was one of those invitations you don't actually say yes to. Like if somebody says, you know, come stay, you know, on my yacht for a week or something. Uh, I never found out if there was a master key to Rockefeller Center. At the moment, I sort of believed that there might be. I thought, you know, that's just crazy enough to be true. And I thought that over and over with this guy. I, I like to tell people who can't believe that I bought his act that because i lived in England and hung out with British aristocrats, you know, titled people, the earl of this, the baron of that. I was so used to them being eccentric that he seemed no crazier than the real ones. If I was a janitor who had never left Minnesota, I would have spotted him for a phony in five seconds. Um, But real rich people will really convince you that fake rich people are, you know, not all that outlandish at all. Uh, One thing I learned about the American class system from Clark Rockefeller is that the people who bought his act most um, thoroughly were the people he was imitating. In 1985, he lived out in San Marino, California, a suburb of L.A., where he was pretending to be a baronet, a British uh, minor royal. He wanted to get into the movie business. The movie business wouldn't have him. He couldn't get an interview. He couldn't get an audition. He couldn't get his foot in the door. In 1985, he murdered his landlady's son um, and buried him in the yard uh, of of their sort of mansion in this nice suburb of L.A. And when these people... Who he'd killed. He also killed the wife, we're convinced, but she was never found. When these people disappeared and people started looking for him, he got in their truck and drove back to Greenwich, Connecticut, where he'd originally emigrated to, and he started as a new person. Eventually, he became Clark Rockefeller. He he had some other aliases along the way, but not having been able to get his foot in the door in Hollywood in Greenwich, Connecticut, he was able to walk into Nico Securities. He was wa- able to walk into Kidder Peabody. He was able to walk in a number of high-toned, white-shoe investment banks and get jobs on the spot because phonies can't tell a phony. Um, and the American upper class is itself a masquerade. It's an imitation of the British gentry. And uh, so here he was, another fake. He fit right in. Um, I'm just going to tell you really briefly about the murder he committed and describe it here. So imagine I, I dressed this way because I don't usually dress this way to put you in mind of the way this guy dressed. He always had a blue blazer on. He usually had a bow tie on. Um, he uh, uh, looked like Christopher Lloyd. If you remember that actor and in, in, in sort of receding hair um, and very stuffy. Um, but, Here's who he really was. Um, He was calling himself the baronet at the time, so I refer to him here as the baronet. The baronet didn't deign to speak to anyone. He's 23 at the time. One person he ignored, by most accounts, was geeky John Sohus, then in his mid-20s. John, who lived with his mother in the main house, was diabetic and adopted, He played Dungeons and Dragons. He loved Tolkien. He knew how to program an Apple II computer back when such knowledge was not a route to millions, but a pursuit whose prestige among his peer group lay somewhere between thumb-sucking and juggling. John was a little guy. His girlfriend, Linda, who worked in a San Fernando Valley fantasy bookstore, Dangerous Visions, had a good six inches and 50 pounds on him, Her hobby was painting unicorns and centaurs. She hoped to make a career of it someday. For their wedding, the couple threw a costume party. One guest was a robot, another a horned demon, and held it on a doubly spooky date, Halloween, 1984. A few months later, the prosecution charged the film student, who wasn't enrolled in film school, the baronet and didn't appear to be flourishing in Hollywood despite his supposed connections to top directors, bashed in John's skull with three blows from a blunt object and stabbed him repeatedly in the back and arms with something razor-like and piercing. No motive for the crime was given in court. California law does not require one, but it may have involved a modest inheritance destined for John that Chichester coveted. That was his name then. Detectives would later interview a woman from whom he extracted, the woman said, a $40,000 finder's fee for her right to nurse an ailing Dee, this is John's mother, who felt abandoned by her missing son. In 1987, with John still gone, Dee, Dee put the woman in her will and perished soon afterward while in her care. Chichester showed up to split the take, but there wasn't much left, the woman told police, and she sent him away unsatisfied. The story was inadmissible in court because the night before the woman was set to be formally deposed, she died. So Chichester may have killed John Sohus for nothing. He may also have done the following for Nothing. Cut the body up into three sections, possibly with an electric chainsaw he borrowed from a neighbor around this time. Placed the head inside two plastic shopping bags, both of them from college bookstores, one at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, the other at USC, both colleges he'd gone to. He kept his grocery bags and put the murder victim in them. Big mistake. Wrapped the hands in plastic grocery bags wound the torso in plastic sheets, dug a three-foot-deep pit in the backyard, stuffed at least a portion of the remains into a fiberglass drum and buried them, wiped up the blood in the guesthouse and burned the carpet returned the chainsaw, arranged to have forwarded from France a series of postcards written either by Linda, that's the wife of the victim, or by a forger familiar with her handwriting, possibly the baronet himself, informing her mother-in-law and several friends that she and John were enjoying a holiday abroad. But Linda wasn't in Europe. She was gone. She never returned to work at Dangerous Visions. She never answered the phone calls from the man who'd bought a couple of her paintings, her first sale. And she never drove out to Phoenix with her best friend for the big science fiction and fantasy convention that they'd been planning to attend. She also missed the little garden party that Chichester organized a few months later, setting up a table in the backyard next to the dirt mound atop her husband's grave, where he and his friends enjoyed a game of trivial pursuit. Linda, whose new white Nissan pickup truck, Chichester, then drove back to the East Coast, where all the dog-loving freelance central bankers live. That's a joke that wasn't set up. When I asked him what he did on the first phone call, he said, I'm a freelance central banker. I said, I didn't know that was a freelance, could be a freelance position. Um... And he said, oh, yes, I run the economies of third world countries from my laptop computer. I have a a model on my computer for their money supply and interest rates, and I just set them from my apartment. I I said, which countries do you do this for? He said, Thailand. Um, I said, which other countries besides Thailand? He said, that's classified. Um, So anyway, he, he killed these people, but first he convinced at least the wife, to go around telling all her friends that she was going to be gone on a secret mission, so if I disappear, don't look for me. I'm on a secret mission. So he's planning this murder for a while, and he was actually getting the victims to prepare a, a cover story for their own murder, which they didn't understand was coming. If you can understand the depth of that sort of sociopathy, you... Understand, Clark Rockefeller. Here was a guy. I mean, this makes American Psycho to me look like you know, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland. Here was a guy who's pretending to be the oldest, classiest, most upstanding of uh, American gentry, and he cut people up, buried them, and threw a Trivial Pursuit party on the grave. Nobody who was at the party knew why they were playing on top of a mound of dirt, and. This body was not found for 10 years until a swimming pool was excavated in the yard and the remains were found. And he wasn't tried until exactly a year ago down in Los Angeles. And somebody who'd been at that party when she was 20, much older now, said, you know, I asked him, what's all this dirt next to the card table? And, and he said, oh, we've been having plumb- plumbing problems in the yard, you know. Um, so, so this was the guy I knew as Clark Rockefeller. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop soon, but I'm going to tell you that the sort of climax for me of, of my personal relationship with him before I found out he was a murderer was a weekend I spent at his country house in New Hampshire, totally alone with him, in a falling down mansion that was very poorly heated, very poorly lit, um, and at which I realized in retrospect I was in danger the whole time. Um, I'll, I'll read you just a couple of, uh, a snippet from that visit. It's kind of funny. It, it was the best trick he ever played as far as I conser- I'm concerned. Um, he, 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 he lured me out to his house in New Hampshire with two um, promises. One, he said he lived next door to J.D. Salinger and we, we would meet him on the visit. Um, And I happened to know that J.D. Salinger did indeed live as a hermit in this town. Um, And Clark was able to provide very convincing details about him, how he what kind of haircut he liked, um, because they sat together at the barbershop and so on. So I'm going to meet J.D. Salinger. Number two, Clark said he wanted to bring me out to tell me about his novels and to help and, and to convince me to help edit his novels for a fee, of course. Now, the fee I'd gotten for driving my truck and then getting in the car and, uh, staying in motels and then staying in New York and then flying back to Minneapolis and getting back in the truck and driving to Montana, a trip that cost me about three or $4,000. The fee was slipped me one night before I left, uh, after that dinner I described and I didn't want to open it because, you know, gentlemen didn't do that it didn't, money, you know, um, of course, I, and I spent the whole night not opening it because I just wanted to imagine how big the check was. You know, it's like if they tell you you've got a winning lottery ticket in your pocket, and you're like, "I'm not going to check it," you know, uh, until it just gets too much. And and I had just been up to his apartment after delivering the dog, saw all these uh, Rothkos and Pollocks and tens of millions of dollars worth of art, which turned out to be fake later on, on his walls, and I, I couldn't resist opening a check anymore I opened it first of all it wasn't written on his account it was written on his wife's account and it was for 500 bucks (laughs) nevertheless I thought when I visited him in New Hampshire that editing his novels might be a really lucrative job problem was I didn't know what his novels were about so finally at the end of the weekend I asked him um, and this is his answer Um, now I'm sick of him by this time. The night before, the night before we went out to dinner and we, we went out to dinner and I had to drive cause he didn't drive. We drove 40 miles to this restaurant. We ate this big dinner. He said, make sure to have dessert. I said, okay, you know, and then after I made sure to have dessert, he said, I forgot my wallet. Um, and, uh, so I paid, and that night driving him back to his mansion, I was like, I'm getting away from this guy. This guy is a jerk. He's been manipulating me. He's playing on my insecurity, my, my desire to sort of get my own back. They didn't treat me very well at Princeton. So, you know, here I'm with a Rockefeller. I'm feeling important, but I'm sick of it, and I'm getting out of here. But, and that was Saturday night. On Sunday morning, he woke me up, and he said, we're going up to Dartmouth to tour the art museum, which my uh, aunt, uh, gave to the university, and even though it's not open, they'll let us in for a private tour. We wa- this is why I kept believing him. We walked in. There was a guard sitting out there. The place was locked, and he said, "Clark Rockefeller, I'd like to take a oh yes, 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 yes." Ushered us in. So afterwards, we went and sat outside of Dartmouth uh, on a uh, at a cafe on the sidewalk. We sat at a tippy table on the sidewalk and ordered tea and coffee, juice and pastries. I vowed to myself to make him pay, though maybe it would be better to split the check. Dignity lay in holding up one's end of things. Or should I shame him by paying the whole thing? Of course it wouldn't shame it, shame him, though it ought to, but maybe beholding further shamelessness would finally force me to act, not merely stew. Tourists went by in their clashing tourist outfits, grumpy with one another, dulled by leisure. I had to get back to work. I couldn't wait. Every moment with Clark was a horrendous waste. I needed an epitaph for him, and it was this. He was a waste and a waster and on purpose. To think too hard about what his purpose might be would only be a further waste. Did you know I consider you my best friend, he said. It startled me his perfect timing. I'd been about to throw coffee in his face. (laughs) I'll tell you why, he said. You're the only person in my life who doesn't want something from me, who isn't envious. I can't be myself with most persons. It's a curse. With you, though, I'm relaxed and comfortable. I'm grateful for this. What a visit. It's been splendid. "Uh, Thank you, I said. I felt cornered by his effusion. I tore a corner off my pastry and dunked it in my coffee, noticing Clark's expression as I did so. He looked displeased but determined not to show it. I dunked things, he didn't. We came from different worlds. Mine no longer embarrassed me however, which meant that his was losing power. I felt sure that he sensed this, and I was curious about, he'd, about what he'd do to try to gain it back. He confessed. He invited me deep into his sadness, pinning me under its melancholy flow. His family was atrocious. His uncles and aunts, who'd stood in for his dead parents, had shooed him along from home to home. His sister, a lunatic, was rotting in some hospital. Unclear to me was whether he missed her or whether her incarceration suited him. I seemed to recall that he'd betrayed her once as something of a burden. He described himself as a wandering, lost soul who had been educated but never nurtured, who had settled for paid-for knowledge as a substitute for priceless affection. Tell me about these novels you've been writing, I asked. Uh, 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 Tell me about these novels you've been writing. I asked this, I told myself, to play for time, not because I was truly curious. I managed to stay inwardly remote, but my tone was solicitous. If I lured him back into pleasant conversation, I thought, he'd eventually try to dominate it, angering me afresh. I needed fresh anger. He'd sucked it out of me. I needed fresh pain to send me running. What, he said? Your books, your novels, what are they about? Oh, those, he said, they're homages, they're reworkings, amusing things to write, but I can't claim they're original. Literature's never original, I said. I got this idea at Princeton, which had borrowed it from Yale, from Harold Bloom, a professor there. His book was called The Anxiety of Influence. It was one of those books whose title tells it all, and that had allowed me to skim it in good conscience. My novels are adaptations of memorable episodes from Star Trek, the TV series, Clark said. Star Trek. It helped ground me to speak the words. And I hope it disguised my flabbergastedness. Uh, The rights, I said. Have you obtained the rights? If you want to exploit another trademarked property... I was channeling my lawyer father's vocabulary, grateful for the cover it provided. You first have to secure the rights to do so. Oh, I'm sure that the person who owns them will sell them to me. You know, Walter, everything is available for a price. Right, I said, that's true. I was still regrouping. I was starting to think the process might take a while, and maybe I should consider drawing it out to tease him and to waste his time for a change. So each novel... Each book is one episode, he said. Interesting. I meant the opposite. I repeated the word to emphasize this fact in case he thought that I was speaking sincerely, not slyly cutting him. Interesting. It was a word very seldom spoken in earnest when responding to book descriptions, book ideas. But did he know this? It was also a word that if spoken three times turned back into a compliment, I feared. I didn't say it again. I, I tried to seem far away instead and drifting further by the millisecond back to my life, to Montana, beyond his reach. And truly, I was almost there. All I had to do first was give him a ride back home. Star Trek The Next Generation, he explained. You're probably thinking of the original series. Are you? I suspect you are. The original series never grabbed me. I found it terribly inferior. I much preferred the sequel. So the thing that makes all this so gruesome is that John Sohus, who I described as an Apple II computer programmer and a fantasy, Tolkien fan, was one of the original Trekkies. He literally dressed in Star Trek clothes as an adult. Clark, before chopping him up and putting him in book bags, had never shown any interest in science fiction. After he murdered him and buried him, he became a Trekkie. Uh, I call him a cannibal of souls in this book. When I was at the murder trial, one of the last witnesses got up and said, yeah, I knew Clark. He had a ranch in Montana. And I re- and then this guy described the, Clark as, the ranch as Clark had described it, and I realized that he had, the reason he had been friends with me and the reason he was friends with other, everybody... Now, imagine this guy. He's living as a, a fugitive. He can't have a uh, driver's license. He can't open a bank account. He's living off uh, rich women, basically. Um, he hides in his house. He can't really uh, engage with the world. So he has to take experience from others. So he would used to grill me all the time about what it was like to live on a ranch in Montana. And here was a guy who he lived with, or who he lived next door to. Years later, telling me that he had one and describing my ranch back to me from court. I, as when I, when I was finishing writing this book last summer after the trial, um, someone, a neighbor, the people who had helped take care of the dog and convinced helped convince me to drive it to him sent me a bunch of emails that clark had been sending them at the same time he had first been talking to me on the phone and one of the emails chilled me and this is where i'll stop he told the people that he did they know anybody who had a ranch in montana they said, yeah. Did he know anybody who had a ranch in Montana with a guest quarters? They said, yeah. Okay. Did he know anybody who had a ranch in Montana with a guest quarters that allowed dogs to run around the place? They said, yeah. Walter Kern, he has that, you know, his wife's head of the Humane Society. Well, they didn't answer that way. He was asking about a place he already knew about from talking to me earlier that day. Could, he, could they convince this person, perhaps, to let him stay there? And I remembered a conversation I'd had back in 2000 with him, in which he'd asked if he could come stay at my house. He'd asked outright. And I said, Really, there's no room. And he said, Well, do you have a guest house? Do you have a garage? And I said, Yeah. Now, the last guest house he'd lived in, he murdered the occupants of the main house. And he said, Well, all I need is a garage. All I need is a guest house. I used to live in one, and I'd never been happier in all my life. You know. So um, this is a book about not just realizing you've been fooled, but realizing you escaped. Today on the plane uh, coming down here, I was dealing with Amazon reviews from some suspicious people who've never reviewed books before, and all of them seemed to hate the book for the same reason. Too much Walter Kern, not enough Clark Rockefeller, they all said. Uh, He's still at me, this guy. He's in state prison down in Kern. He's in state prison in Kern County. And uh, I think he probably has a library card and a laptop that he can go to for about an hour a day. Because these people tend to appear on Amazon between 10 and 11 in the morning. Um, And... uh, I don't think I'll ever be done with them until he or I die. Um, I, I, so I hope that I've left enough mystery in the book. Let me tell you, just wonder what happened to those dogs if you're thinking about buying the book, because uh, that's, the, that's the interesting part. Anyway, any questions? <laughs> Sandra Boss is Clark's ex-wife. She has a child with him who he tried to kidnap, and she has moved to England. She was at the trial. I met her a couple of times. She didn't want to talk to me. Her life is all about protecting her child from media, from this horror that was visited on her by her father. And frankly, as somebody who was hurt by him, I didn't want to put on the journalist hat and go and be this intrusive guy uh, meddling in people's Shattered lives. Um, so I didn't, know. She, she wouldn't have talked to me. Uh, Linda Sohus. Okay, so John was buried in this yard, and they found him after nine years by accident. And people came up to me at the trial and said, you know, doesn't God work in mysterious ways? You know, he killed, these, he killed this guy, and he buried him, and he thought he'd committed the perfect crime. He, he sent postcards back to the friends as though the people were still alive. A trick that he copied from *The Talented Mr. Ripley*, actually. Uh, one, the other thing that you'll see in this book is that I discovered that all that his crimes were uh, made up of pieces of famous film noir uh, uh, movies and a few books. Um, anyway, uh, they said, you know, he thought he committed the perfect crime. He buried these people and. Low and below, they dig a swimming pool. Nine years later, they find him, and twenty years or 28 years later, he's convicted. They said, you know, that's proof of providence that they found this body. I said, well, here's a proof of something else. The wife has never been found. She's never been disappeared. That tells me that somewhere under the lawns of San Marino, there's another body. The cops told me they thought... She had been dumped on something called the Angel's Crest Highway, which goes out of Los Angeles into the wilderness, up uh, into the high desert. And he had been driving around after the murders with a, a drum in the back of this truck, asking people where he could dump some chemicals. Uh, some. And, uh, and, and the, murder, the homicide detective said, I think he went up. That's where all the bodies go in, in L.A., up there. So one night, right before the memorial service last summer for John Sohus, which was held right by that Angel's Crest Highway, I decided to drive up the highway and and sort of keep, imagine I was in a truck with a body and a fiberglass drum in the back and think, where's the first place where I would feel safe stopping the truck and pushing the thing over a cliff or whatever? And I got up there and I went around a corner and the L.A. skyline disappeared and suddenly there were no cars on the road. And suddenly I looked next to the road and everybody starts littering at the same point on this Angel's Crest Highway. They get to a certain point and they throw the diapers out the window. They throw the six packs out the window. Human beings, when they think they're out of sight, turn into animals, you know. Oh, you know, hi, good neighbor. You know, cars are all gone. Suddenly it gets dark. and Let's throw friggin' beer out the window and, you know, pampers and stuff. And so I realized that the place where all this garbage started being thrown was probably the place where Linda was. When I first met him, as I said, I wanted to write about him. One of the reasons I went out to see him was I thought, right, here's this crazy eccentric. He'll be a character in a novel someday. When I got to know him... Uh, and he sort of became a friend. I thought, you can't, the the Minnesota boy came out, and I said, you can't burn a friend. You can't write about a real person, especially one who values his privacy so highly. And years went by. Then in 2008, as I described, he's outed. And when he was outed as a murder suspect, here was my honest first thought. I went, ka-ching, you know. The writer in me, the savage you know chronicler who just you know doesn't care as long as it's interesting who he burns came out and I thought this guy's fair game again and I am going to sink my teeth in because I hate him <laughs> um and so you know uh there's there is some undisguised revenge in this book you know I, Clark told me that his favorite book was The Great Gatsby. He said he'd modeled his whole life on The Great Gatsby. His mom gave it to him when he was 10 to learn English, and it had been his Bible ever since. Now, he told me this in prison after he was convicted, and it just happened that that week the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio had come out. I got a letter from another guy this uh, week who had known him uh, who said, oh, he used to tell me what his favorite book was, and I asked him. He said, Trout Fishing in America. Um, that, that's how, you know, cubist this person could be. Um, so when I found out that I'd been duped, you know, at first I saw material. That's, in other words, I had that writer's killer instinct. But when I finished the book and when I literally sent it off to the publisher late last October, I went to bed that night and I'd been staying up all night for months and I woke up, like in the movie Deliverance, at the end, the guy wakes up in the middle of the night. And I'd had a dream that I was driving in a dark car with him. And he said, can you stop the car? I have to get out. I think you have a flat tire. Let's look. And I re- remembered in the dream thinking this guy lies about everything. And he cuts people up into pieces. And I'm dead. And I woke up screaming. <laughs> really, it's only, you, you, like, you're getting to see, like, fresh off the dock PTSD with me here. Um, you know, it's only once I reduced this thing to an object that its horror really settled in because I wasn't crafting it anymore, you know? Yeah, Gatsby the Ripper. I, you know, one of the. Oh, this is a book also about film or about noir. Because, you know, here's this guy who pretended to be an East Coast air and fancy member of these posh clubs, but the book ended up in LA it ended up in downtown LA in a gritty courtroom where i would hang out at night with the novelist James Elroy who wrote L- LA Confidential and he's a hard strange character man and um, but he kept me honest you know at, in prison clark started to try to tell me stories that would lead me to investigate strange and scandals and crimes that he might have been involved in and he got me on the internet trail of some various things and everybody knows when you start investigating something on the internet it just leads outward and down and in and everywhere i mean i had figured out where the ufo's were i'd figured out who killed kennedy i'd fi- you know and clark seemed to be involved with all of it and i was telling elroy one night at dinner i was like you know he dropped some he 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 wrote some clues on a a piece of paper in in the prison and he held it up to the window while we were talking and I've been looking at them and he he said stop man he said he's a stone psychopath and you're trying to get the truth from a liar and you will never ever do that and I sort of woke up and I went like they say novels never end, they're never abandoned, relationships with psychopaths will never end if you let them keep talking you abandon them and you run the novels no, here's, what, here's my experience of Clark's writing. I turned him down. I, I, I didn't feel I could edit those. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you see, here's what happened. After he was convicted, I, I started visiting him in prison. And he, of course, denied the crime. He, Linda committed the crime, he told me. You, she was working on a horse farm somewhere in North Carolina. If I'd just go there, I'd find her. She was under another name. And he, he, he was like O.J. Simpson, who supposedly had teams of investigators out there, you know. He, and so, um, but Clark, when he saw me again, didn't put two and two together and realize I was a writer. And I was probably there in prison to talk to him, to write about him. He thought I was just an old friend who couldn't stand, stay away, you know. The first thing I wanted to do is fly down from Montana after he got stuck in prison and talk to him, you know. And uh, so he asked me, the first thing he asked me for was if I could give him an instruction book on writing sonnets. And he said he's been writing a lot of sonnets in prison. He's been in prison since 2008, because he got convicted for the kidnapping. And I didn't send him the book, but he started sending me letters, and he sent me a sonnet that he'd written. And it was a perfectly executed sonnet in English, perfectly executed in terms of rhyme, structure, meter, and so on. But its subject was the German electoral system. <laughs> and and he wrote another sonnet about the European Union and why it, you know, and the currency system. Um, so he was like a Spock Shakespeare, you know, in other words, uh, perfect execution, no feeling. And, and, and I imagine that's what his Star Trek books were like. But he'd also written a novel that was 1,000 pages, that was the history of Europe from, 19, from the armistice after the, World War I to 1963— uh, and it had many characters, and he wrote me the whole outline, and it looked like the most boring friggin' book in the history of the world. So here's the, here's the real um, crux of people. Uh, here, here's the dividing point in people's reaction to this book. This is not a conventionally psychological narr- uh, account of, of, of a criminal's life. Everybody asked me that question. What was his childhood like? Everybody's seen Oprah so they know that something bad had to happen to him for him to be bad, right? Well, a lot of people have looked into his past. This isn't the first book that's been written about him. And I know German film crews who I met at the trial who'd looked in. There wasn't much evidence that anything bad had ever happened to him. Uh, They used to have these movies in the 50s where it'd be the bad seed. Just the kid who, you know, at three is like, mommy, I want to kill you, and, and and that was thought to be, you know, sort of psychologically unsophisticated, like a horror premise rather than, you know, it, the real reason kids were bad was because, you know, they were abused and this and that. But there's no record, no sense that he was abused. What does seem to be true is that his mom was maybe promiscuous and thought that she was sort of... Uh, too beautiful and too fancy for the town, a kind of Blanche du Bois this tiny, tiny Bavarian town. And the father wanted to be an artist, uh, had gone to a very prestigious art school, art academy in Germany, but ended up painting houses and was kind of a somewhat defeated guy. But that was it, you know. Uh, this is, you know, this is to me this uh, a, a symbolic little moment. Somebody who'd researched his past went back When he was in fourth grade or grade school, he came up to a teacher and he said, look what I have, teacher. And she looked and he opened his hand and he went and blew pepper right in her eyes. And that's that guy. I mean, all of the sort of consoling uh, wisdom about how killers and psychopaths are made and how it's all our fault. And how it could be stopped, and da, da 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 And I've had psychiatrists write me and tell me this. Narcissistic parents, they say, that's what did it. I'm not so sure. I, I, I think, you know, it's just like a bad kitten in a litter, you know? The one that's hissing at you that you can't pick up from the minute it's born. That's what I think. The great lesson of this book, and then I'm gonna uh, stop, for me, is that every interaction, every moment, of our social lives and of our economic lives and of our romantic lives is founded on an assumption of goodwill and founded on trust. When you take your money into the bank and put it over the counter, you don't figure those people in the back, uh, uh, the tellers are just robbers dressed as tellers. When the policeman pulls up behind you with the lights, you figure it's not, you know, the Zodiac killer with a fake light on his car. When you meet somebody and you talk to them, you figure, you know, they, uh, when they tell you, you know, they're single, they're not married. You might, there are some reasons why we are skeptical, but in other words, we can't go on. We can't get out of this room without trusting each other. Well, there is a mutation among the human species, I believe, called the sociopath, who sees that need for trust as an opportunity for power. And every vulnerability that you and I have, every bit of innocence and trust and, and, and as you say, moral education that allows us to you know, have equal and caring and loving and respectful relationships is for them leverage they're like uh, you know they're, they're like a, a prehistoric uh, being that knows only survival in human form and they look at you and when you think you're displaying a good quality they go sucker and uh, this book in writing it and considering this guy made me a little harder toward the human race than I wish I were not toward, not toward all of us, I feel for all of us, but that little subset of it that walks around taking advantage of us, and they are at the highest level of office and the lowest level and everywhere in between, but actually they're more at the highest level. <laughs> <laughs> They've done studies. Sociopaths tend to be very successful. They tend to be, the CEOs of companies are, there is a greater incidence of sociopathy among that cohort than there is among the workers in the factories. So we live in a society of these people and we explain them away and we explain away their lies and we, and we take on ourselves, uh, the damage that they cause, but we should be sometimes as angry as I got at Clark. I mean, when these people feed us into war machines and they do things like this, you know, it's not just business as usual. You have a right to be upset, you know? Um, and, uh, I'm still upset at this guy, and he's still upset at me. That's why the Amazon star rating is plunging by the hour. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.